You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Dr. John Jackson. He's the president of Jessup University. John, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Zach, thank you. I love the title of your show, and I love uh, the fact that you have an audience that wants to talk about ministry growth. That is near and dear to my heart. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about Jessup University, what you guys, why you guys exist, and, and uh, what makes Jessup maybe unique? Yeah, thanks a lot, Zach. So first of all, uh, Jessup started in 1939 as a Bible college, San Jose Bible College, then became San Jose Christian College, and then in 2004 moved from the Bay Area over to the Sacramento region. So one of the things that makes us unique is that we are the only Christ-centered university within about a three-hour radius. So we touch the Bay Area, we touch the Sacramento region, northern Nevada near Reno, uh, and then down into central California. So uh, our location is distinct. That's the first thing. Second thing I'll tell you is that we are deeply committed to having what we call a, a gospel worldview, very biblically grounded. Uh, and Zach, you probably know this and maybe your listeners do. A lot of times schools start out as Christian and they have kind of religious foundations and you can maybe even still take classes in a religion department. But we do what's called faith integration across every perspective. So I've been yeah. fortunate to be here 13 years when I first came, no math no arts except for music, no sciences, no graduate programs, no online. But thankfully, uh, we now have tripled in size last 13 years. We have all that. And faith integration, a gospel worldview, a biblical foundation is in every one of our subjects. And uh, maybe last thing, Zach, is that we're really committed to engaging with culture. Like uh, we we have clear biblical foundations, but our whole kind of tagline here is equipped and known. We want people equipped to become who God created them to be, to find their life purpose, and then to be a transformational leaders in culture. So uh, we, the way we do that is that we're known. We're known by God and we're known by our faculty. If, if you come to Jessup as a student, graduate or undergraduate, online or on ground, your professors will know you by name. Mm. Yeah, I went to... Um... I didn't tell you this offline, but I went to Vanguard University in Southern California and played baseball for them. And then post-college, actually, I don't know why I didn't bring this up, but I coached, assistant coached the baseball team at Jessup um, and helped out there. Zach, first of all, I got to interrupt you. You are killing me. Uh, I wanted to be a pro (laughs) baseball player. And at age 15, I figured out I was good, but not great. You uh-huh. got to go on to the next level. Love Vanguard. We have good friends down there. And uh, thanks for actually assistant coaching our baseball team. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was it was a fun it was a fun year. Then I started having kids and was not able to keep up with those commitments. But it was it was a fun year. But yeah, it's baseball is a big part of my upbringing and and story. And uh, I mean, really, the literally the only reason I, I went to college. And then somehow found myself into the ministry space because much of what I what I learned and experienced in college and 
And so it's been, it's been quite a journey from athlete to working in the ministry world. So that's awesome. And I want to engage in culture. I want to explore that a little bit further, but I think it'll be more relevant as we get to the second half of our discussion, but can you describe, so let's focus on these first sets of questions. Can you describe some of the unique challenges that come with leading a Christian university, especially in a state, uh, we'll say, as diverse and complex as California, and how do you navigate those challenges? Yeah. Well, thanks for, first of all, recognizing sometimes I'll talk about higher ed, faith-based higher ed, uh, and then I'll talk about faith-based higher ed in California, because if you're mm-hmm. in California and you're not in Tennessee or Texas or Idaho or one of the other more friendly states, uh, California is the sometimes the leading edge, uh, or I would call it the bleeding edge of a progressive kind of agenda. And uh, it's a challenge, Zach. Sometimes uh, leading a college like this means that we uh, get attacked frontally. It's it's not uncommon for our regional newspaper to be upset at something we've done or or try to do. But but uh, so some of the challenges are uh, frontal attacks from culture where they're upset about our our biblical convictions, our sincerely mm-hmm. held religious beliefs, or they're upset with a policy that we have that comes out of those beliefs. Uh, but other times, Zach, the pressure is is less frontal and it's more. Uh, just a subtle pressure in the classroom. It's uh, We're not a faith statement school, Zach, so probably a third of our students don't have a relationship with Christ. A okay. third of our students are what I would call cultural Christians, and then a, a third of our students are on fire for the Lord. Uh, probably not too different, by the way, from what you'd find in a lot of churches, where mm-hmm. you've got folks who are coming to church, but they don't really have a relationship with Jesus. They may have a religious background or something like that. So the pressures are sometimes in the classroom or the dorms or on the sports teams. And sometimes the pressures are more frontal. But sometimes Mm. I think about it this way, Zach, and I hope this will encourage your listeners. Um, You know, name a city in the United States where you think it's hard to be a Christian. Whatever city you would come up with, let's, for my purposes, let's say San Francisco. It's it's hard to be a, a follower of Jesus in San Francisco. Do you really think it's harder to be a follower of Jesus in San Francisco than in Corinth or Ephesus or Rome? Mm-hmm. I mean, being a Christian in the first century when the New Testament was being written and lived out was absolutely an uphill climb, a, a upstream kind of journey. And uh, you know, Zach, because of your background, there, there's Christians right now across the planet where they're being persecuted and they can't get jobs, they can't get education, and occasionally... Uh, they're becoming martyred. You know, there's there's martyrs in present day reality for following Jesus. So mm-hmm. when I got to face a newspaper editor that's upset at me or or somebody who is in a classroom frustrated with our policies, that's a small price to pay to follow mm-hmm. Jesus. And, and the way we would try to respond, Zach, try to respond with love and grace, but be full of grace and truth. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned some of those other schools that might have had faith-based backgrounds. I think about the Harvards and the Yales and the Oxfords that all started out as biblical schools. That's right. And really in focused on missions work. And now how that that has trans how that transition has since tra- transpired over the decades into what it is today. It's it's that whole idea of mission creep and how do you stay on track and stay in alignment with your original core values and and vision for for education system specifically in our in this context 
Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's hard. You know, if people who study history will know this. I think it's all but one of the Ivy League schools were started to train pastors, to train ministers. Right. And in our day, when I'm talking to parents, I, I wrote a small little tiny book called Choosing a College, uh, the, the Right Choice, Choosing a College and Why It Matters. And I said, if, if you do decide to go to a, a public university, you know, here's some things to think about. A lot of times people will go to a private religious college because it's religious, mm-hmm. but the religion department is literally just a department and faith is not integrated across the curriculum. So it's so important uh, for parents, for students to look carefully and say, what's the spiritual atmosphere of the place that I'm going to? And I think, uh, Zach, that's just absolutely critical uh, for people to know the culture. I, I don't know if I'd choose a college today without making an in-person visit, sit in a class, listen to some mm. faculty, read the materials and and talk to everyday students, not the people. And I say this at Jessup, by the way, not just the people who are giving you the tour because they're going to show you all the nice stuff. Try to talk to really everyday real students, ask them what they're experiencing and pay attention to the writing uh, mm. and the speaking that's done in the university. Yeah. I think I heard a, a quote maybe from Prager U that said that five out of six kids that come out of university share their parents' values that they went into school with. And that's obviously a more of a conservative political statement, but I think you're seeing that within within higher education in even inside of Christian schools across the country too. Well, if I could be a little bold, we had uh, Dennis Prager. I love Dennis Prager. We had Dennis Prager on our campus uh, last week, and he and I had a really good. I got to interview him, and and then by oh, the way, cool. I got to pray for him at the end, which was wonderful. But I, I will say this: um, I think that universities have been the seminaries of culture for the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. And when you think about 1970s forward, uh, it's the universities that have been training up the folks who are now the leaders of culture and so many of the, quote, mm-hmm. progressive or left edge or woke agenda kind of folks. Um, it was university where they kind of got off track and where they got um uh, religiously uh, raised up in those worldviews that are so destructive to faith uh, yeah. and even I was thinking about Harvard. You, you just mentioned Harvard. The, you know, the motto of Harvard being veritas or truth. Mm-hmm. Boy, Zach, uh, I'll probably take us off on a tangent here, but we've gone <laughs> from absolute truth to relative truth, but we're not even in relative truth anymore where it's culture and context that determines truth. That's what relative truth is. We're actually in experiential truth. Whatever my truth is, yep. is true for me. And whatever your truth is, is true for you. And I think that's even uh, beyond what um, a relative truth is. I think we're into that experiential truth and boy, so dangerous and so corrupting of uh, the ultimate reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ and to base your life on the authority of the word of God. Yeah, mm, that's good. Um transitioning a little bit, what are some of the trends that you see are seeing in higher education as things become more and more digital? So with organizations yeah. like a, a Theos U becoming ever increasingly more popular, how are you guys navigating those kind of digital shifts, especially for higher education and, and maybe innovating for those changes in a, I would say a dramatically changing world? 
You're absolutely right, Zach, and it's such a great question. Uh, I think that COVID-19 was a, a revealer and an accelerator. It revealed a lot of things about people and families and businesses and governments and structures, uh, medical care, et cetera, but it also accelerated some things. So the fact that we're able to have this conversation using technology is very commonplace now. So in, in college, three issues that I've been dealing with for my entire tenure here is cost, value and debt. What's the cost of college? What's the value of college? And then how much debt do I have upon graduation? Those are huge, important subjects. So what digital is doing for us is allowing us to reduce the cost of higher ed. So I'm gonna give you a couple things. At, at Jessup, for instance, our average graduate graduates with one third the debt, one third less, excuse me, one third less the debt of the national average. And we're working to make it one half. That's one of our stated strategic goals. Mm. One of the ways we do that is that almost all of our traditional undergraduate, these are kids who are 18 to 25, they're taking classes during the daytime at campus. Uh, almost all of our students take a portion of their degrees online. Two okay. thirds of our online users are traditional students taking one or two classes a semester online. What that's doing is we've kept our prices stable for the last four years. Now, Zach, you know what inflation has happened for the last four years, but right. Jessup has not raised its price for four consecutive years. And I'm pretty certain we're not going to raise our prices for the next uh, year or two. And we're going to do that even though there's a huge challenge for that. But part of how we're doing that is some portion of education is being delivered digitally now in a way that it didn't before, and that's a lower cost. Here's the second way, uh, textbooks. Uh, like you mentioned, Theos U, we're, we're seeing more and more digital resources available. Uh, this will date me a lot, but when I was uh, graduating from college, uh, I didn't have any money, but people gave me some money. And one of the things I did, I had an undergraduate degree in, in uh, Christian history and thought, religion, and I bought a set of Kittle, K-I-T-T-E-L. That was a big, huge Greek resource, 10 volumes. I think I remember it was $140. It used to be like five or 600. Well, Kittle is now 100% all available digitally. You would never need, if you didn't want to, to buy that set of volumes. You could get it digitally uh, for much less cost. And so that's mm -hmm. what's happening is amazing resources. And I still like printed books, by the way, for a lot of things, but amazing digital resources. And it's making college more accessible. Size of our library right now, Zach, does not matter in terms of physical volumes. We have thousands, but we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of resources available digitally. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's wild to see this shift. It's been interesting to follow Theos U and what they're doing over there with that seminary level training for what, like $13 a month. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and you, you, it's good to hear that you guys are thinking through that and trying to innovate in that space and keep up with those trends because that is, it is going to affect the university system, whether we like it or not. I don't see how it obviously already is, but that trend will continue. And if universities don't, get on board and and make adjustments to some of those changes it's it's going to be a sad day and it's 
coming faster than I think that we all want to. Well, and, and I think you're right. And I'll even say this. I think we're moving, Zach, and this is a larger trend than just digital. We're moving to just-in-time education. Mm. Um, I was the odd duck in my generation back in the late 70s, early 80s. I did education and college and seminary and eventually my doctorate all the while working full-time. Now, I'm not saying that was healthy. I'm not saying that was the best. I have lots of <laughs> painful memories of, of back then working in churches and, and going full-time to seminary, but I was learning and doing and learning while doing simultaneously. I think what's going to happen now, Zach, people are going to come and get some training and get a job and get more training and a job. And in other words, there's these oscillating rhythms. Mm. I don't know of an industry where you could finish college today, start work and stop learning. That's that's just not reality. We we need yeah. to be lifelong learners, whatever field you're in or industry. There's continuing education. There's lifelong uh, development that has to take place, and that's part of what we try to equip people for at Jessup is to help them not just you know know what to know, but know how to learn and how to gain knowledge, critical thinking, all those skills. Those serve you for the rest of your life. And even though you it's didn't want to novel idea. Yeah. <laughs> critical even thinking. What? You didn't want to go to college except to play ball, uh, which <laughs> I totally relate to. Uh, you, you know, you you learned stuff while you were in school that you've used the rest of your life, even though you thought you weren't paying attention. Uh, you know, it, it it has a way of benefiting you over time. Yeah. Yeah. So so as you guys think about these shifts and trends and how this all and watch how this is all playing out. How are you preparing for those shifts maybe over the next five, 10 years? Like you've, it's one thing to try to remain consistent in cost and everything, but are there some innovative ways that you're trying to take advantage of digital and to um, prepare for the changes that are coming? Let me give you two or three uh, pathways that we're exploring right now. And some of our colleagues and friends in the industry are, are doing this as well. But uh, during COVID, what we found is a lot of adults who'd never before accessed digital education were all of a sudden, you know, they're at home. And so they're signing up for masterclass. They're signing up for, for video instructional experiences. So we began to experiment with and we're having amazing success with this uh, first idea I'm going to tell you. A lot of times, Zach, when we say online education, people think of what we describe as asynchronous. Professor records lectures. I listen to the lectures. I do my reading. I participate in the chat room and leave my comments. And then I write a paper or take a test and I'm, I'm done. There's no real human to human interaction. So what we're doing, and, and we still have that. We, we certainly have that available. But we do a thing called uh, synchronous remote education which means you, me, and 10 other people are in a class on business ethics. We're on a class in the gospels. We're on a class uh, about eschatology. We're on a class about apologetics. We're on a class about English or history, but we're in that class uh, and all or a substantial por portion of it is remote and synchronous. It's five o'clock Tuesday night or six o'clock instead of driving to the campus you're online in a Zoom or some other form of simultaneous room. What people are telling us, Zach, is that feels to them like it's digital, but it's also simultaneous. So people are actually developing relationships. People mm. are feeling like I'm having this human contact, even though it's, it's not the same as being in a physical room, 
but it's a great use of technology. So now I'm not driving to campus, got to get a babysitter for the kids and all that. I can have the kids kind of occupying themselves in another room and I can do this for an hour or two online. So that's one use. Um, synchronous remote education. That's one. Here's, here's a second one. This one's a little bit more out there, Zach. So let's just get ready. Uh, what, what Theos U is doing in an experimental uh, format, I actually think is key to the future. You probably remember this phrase, the idea of software as service, mm -hmm. where now instead of buying a software program for 200, 300, 500, you know, $2,000, what you do is you pay a monthly cost, depending on the capacities of the software. It's software as service. You're paying for it monthly. The updates happen automatically, and it's all in what we today would call the cloud. Well, I think the future of higher ed financially is a subscription base. It's, it's higher education uh, as a subscription-based service. I mm. think in time, because of the demand for lifelong learning, for instance, a Jessup alum, what I want I'm 61, so before I retire, I want, uh, whatever, however many years that is, I want a Jessup alum to have lifelong access to Jessup learning resources, and I want that to be a digital subscription where they have a forever relationship with Jessup. I'm not saying all tuition will go away, but I think long-term digital is gonna allow us to provide resources. We can provide access to this conversation, and we have theologians and scientists and philosophers. We could provide access to those things digitally in a repository with a, a subscription base. You look at what's happened to your television. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you, you probably have a few networks on your local station, but other than that, you're subscribing and it's frustrating and we all get aggravated by it, but you gotta decide which subscription services you wanna access. And then you become part of that larger community. So subscription, service uh, or education as a subscription service would be number two. Here's a third one. Zach, we used to say, uh, okay, this whole remote business, this whole online, this digital thing, uh, all right, that, that's fine if you're maybe going to do a history class or English class, but you cannot do sciences remotely. And guess what, Zach? Because we're seeing things like virtual reality because mm. we're seeing things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and i know this is scary it's scary for me mm -hmm. but what we learned during covid is you actually can do science remotely you can have students set up with things in their site and then you can walk them through things digitally and they can have a form of a lab experience well now with virtual reality what i predict you're going to see people doing anatomy and physiology virtually. You're going to see mm -hmm. people doing the sciences virtually. You're also going to see in business classes, virtual simulations where you'll be in a corporate boardroom, having a conversation, making a presentation in a virtual reality. I know that's scary. It's scary for me, but I'm telling you it's here and it's on its way. So that's, that's another way where I think digital is going to take place. Now, Having said all that, Zach, um, so I'm, I'm a futurist. I, I enjoy thinking about those things. But having said all that, if you and I are doing this digitally, if we were in the same room together physically and we could connect physically, there's something different about that. I never mm -hmm. believe that virtual reality, that digital access will replace human to human contact. In fact, 
I think the more digital we have, the more desperate people are for the face-to-face contact. Maybe not in a crowd, but one-to-one. We want to, we want to be in a small group experience with real people. Mm. Flesh and blood. Yeah. <clears throat> we think a lot of, about that from a, from a digital experience for disciple making is that can you actually make reproducing disciples in a digital space? There's a lot of organizations and ministries that we've talked to that would argue that you can, and are doing some really cool, innovative stuff towards that. But man, I, as a digital guy, like that's, this is the place that we play in. I struggle with that. It's hard. Yes. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I have not seen it. Um, actually work. Now, digital opens up incredible opportunities for engagement. And that's one of the things that you said um, with your synchronous remote education stuff um, that kind of piqued my interest is it's good to see that you guys are thinking through that and, and innovating in that space from an, a digital engagement type conversation. Because what I see most within the church is we're just broadcasting. We're broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting. We're not using digital for the social engagement opportunities that lie within it. And so, man, there's incredible opportunities in digital to engage with people, especially unengaged and unreached peoples. Um, But whether or not we can take that engagement and turn it into true, real, face-to-face digital or disciple-making opportunity I don't know. I'm unconvinced. Yeah. It's, it's well, you're, and again, I don't have an answer either. You're a little bit like me. If you think about telehealth, it's great to know that a doctor could talk to you, that you can take a picture of what you're feeling, like maybe even take a picture of the inside of your throat. Maybe someday mm-hmm. we'll have some of that. But you know what? If my appendix is burst, I'm going to the hospital with a real person. <laughs> so oh, man. let me use this. If I'm a disciple, and we're having a conversation and maybe I just tell you about an area of sin I'm struggling with, or I tell you about an area of like, I don't understand this Bible passage. Well, I think there's a lot that can happen digitally. Mm-hmm. But boy, I don't know if there's anything like somebody praying with you and giving you a hug. Like, how does that happen digitally? What does that mean to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? And mm-hmm. so Zach, you know, I'm, I know I'm old. I, I use technology and I appreciate technology, but I'll tell you what, I, I just think there's something that technology, and I can't even imagine, I've, I've used some VR, I can't imagine virtual reality or augmented reality in any way, shape, or form replacing. It, 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 it's a wonderful tool, which I want to say something kind of as a warning. It's a wonderful tool. I also am very aware that virtual reality and augmented reality will probably take the problem of pornography to oh my goodness. next level to the nth degree. And as a pastor and as a father uh, and a husband, I'm very burdened about that for our culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, you already have one. Well, and, and the question that we, that we're trying to think through from a minute, from our ministry's perspective is digital is this really incredible opportunity to engage and I believe that we have the church has to be functional in that space. We have to be relevant in that space yes. because the reality is, and th- this reality is ever increasing more and more every single day, people are spending more and more time in these places. This is where people hang out, right? 
eight plus hours a day right now is the statistics. When VR hits, that will be significantly worse. This is where the unreached and unengaged are spending their time. It's where much of the church is spending its time. And like it or not, like that's just the reality. And so if we are, if our theology says that we are to go and meet people where they're at in the same way Christ comes and meets us in our brokenness and in our depravity, right? Our theology would say that, but our behaviors in digital don't act that way. We're not acting that way as a global body. And so, man, there's incredible opportunities to meet people, engage with people and build relationships in these places. Um, I see that. How do you, how do you balance that between, man, there's incredible opportunity, but it is so dangerous. And uh, I don't know the answer. This might be one of the ways to, to think about it. Let me use Jesus first, and then I'll move to the first century and then to present. Uh, Jesus met the woman at the well, at the well. Mm. So Jesus was at the well on purpose. Now he's Jesus, but he was there with the redemptive presence of the father, meeting that woman who had a tawdry past, who had all kinds of challenges. And that woman became an amazing evangelist for her town. He was Mm -hmm. at the well. Now let me fast forward. If you're in Corinth or Ephesus in the first century and you got nothing to say to the culture of temple prostitution, then you're not engaging with a ton of the culture. So, so what do you do? You got to be able, if you're the body of Christ in Corinth or Ephesus, the first century to say, do, do I have a love for the tragic reality of those women who are involved in temple prostitution? Do I have a love for the tragedy of those men who are going into the temple prostitutes? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a redemptive sense of assignment there, and if you don't have clarity that that's part of who God longs for you to reach, that's in my mind, a great commission problem. Now, fast forward. Now we're in our culture, name your town, name your city, name the issue, whatever's going on in in your particular community. I think, first of all, we have to disciple people deeply. And Zach, one of my, one of my contentions about COVID is that COVID was a revealer and it revealed the shallowness of discipleship in the American church. Mm. Now, I just want to raise my hand and say, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus, the family and the church. So I love the church and I'm, and I'm accountable for this. I'm not saying this about somebody else. I'm just saying we in the church have not produced a lot of fathers and mothers. We got a lot of babies and a lot of sons and daughters, but we have not produced fully mature reproducing disciples. We are not We have not done well at that and COVID revealed that. So here's the second thing, grow people deep. And then the next thing I would say is we've got to equip people who are on particular assignment. I'll use one example, media. Many years ago, Zach, if you look back in American history, let's let's call it 1920s. It was maybe before then. A a lot of Christians said media is evil. You know, the talkies, they're they're evil. The the, the screen is evil. So, So we said, we're not, we're not doing that. And the, body of Christ, the church walked away. Mm. Well, look what's happened the last hundred years. We abandoned the whole media world. And because we abandoned the whole media world, guess who took over? You know, Satan loves to steal, kill and destroy. So he stole, killed and destroyed the impact of media. Now, thankfully, we've had a lot of redemptive involvements. I'm, I'm thankful that we're seeing some good successes of recent movies like Jesus Revolution and others. 
But to be frank, we need followers of Jesus who are specially trained, equipped, and surrounded as they go into those atmospheres and shift the atmosphere for the glory of God. And that's part of what mm. we have a vision for at Jessup is to raise up transformational leaders for the glory of God. And I've, I hope there's a future before I die and before uh, the Lord, you know, brings things to a close here on this planet or either, however it works. I, I just pray that we'll see Christians. And I know there are many, many that be Christians in media, politics, business, education who say, I'm a disciple. I'm surrounded by people who, who are going to love me, hold me accountable. And man, I'm in the industry as a, as a light for Jesus Christ. Hmm. That's interesting you bring that up. We, <clears throat> I'm in the process of writing a blog post, an article on like Renaissance era. The church had ownership over the arts. Like everything in the arts came out of the church. Now we kind of botched it and didn't steward that very well. But the reality is we had control over the arts. We had control over uh, sculpture and painting and liter literacy and all these things, drama, uh, and when the Enlightenment hit, we punted and jettisoned all of that. And for the sake of literacy and uh, logic and reasoning and science, not bad things. We just said beauty and the arts are irrelevant. We're just going to focus on logic and reason. And the world took advantage and took ownership over all of those things. And now... What's that quote? You control the arts or you control the narrative. You control culture. We have no say in culture or very little say in culture because we have punted on and jettisoned our, our ability to have any say through the arts in culture. And Zach, and, you, Zach you write that blog post. I'm reading it and I'm circulating <laughs> it because... Uh, you know, I think the reality, we have a beautiful music and, and theater programs here and, and visual um, performing arts uh, programs. But I'll tell you, the church has large. And by the way, I, I don't have I know everybody's creative. I don't have real artistic skills myself, but I'm surrounded by people who do. And mm -hmm. as a public speaker, I speak all the time as a public speaker. There are places that a painting, a song, a dance a theatrical presentation, a, 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 a sculptor, a sculpted image can touch in the soul that the spoken word cannot touch. Yeah. And so we abandon the arts to our peril. It's exactly as you described. Please write that blog post. Get on it, Zach. Come on. <laughs> I'll work it on it. Are you looking to grow your ministry but don't have the money or marketing knowledge to make that happen? There's good news. Google offers an advertising grant to churches and ministries that is worth $10,000 per month. This means that if your ministry is a 501c3 nonprofit, you are eligible to receive $120,000 per year in free advertising dollars. This allows you to place ads at the top of Google search results pages and drive thousands of visitors to your ministry website every month. Our sponsor, Click Nonprofit, helps your ministry acquire this Google ad grant and then manages your Google ads to ensure you get the most out of the grant. Schedule a free consultation at clicknonprofit.com to learn more about how this grant can help your specific ministry. Mention the Ministry Growth Show when you sign up to get 20% off your first three months of management. It's interesting and, and you talked about... Um, 
engaging culture, especially around that experiential truth, um, the the arts and media and I mean, we're as an agency and a ministry, we're interested in storytelling above all else. Like that, to my greater vision for this ministry is to help the church testify of all that Jesus is doing. Right, that would be that would be how I would classify and define my call. Um, we have the greatest stories ever told, right? Death to life transformation, right? Christ comes on the scene. C.S. Lewis argued that he fulfilled the monomyth for all of human history up until that point. Ancient civilizations had been telling stories, stories like Hercules, hoping for a hero that would come on the scene to and be able to defeat death, right? Jesus comes on the scene. He actually fulfills that. A, a real hero who can actually defeat death. And now Romans six, we get to share in his death and resurrection, right? I, I am dead in my trespasses and al- made alive and a new creation. When I accept Christ and start walking in alignment with him, right? that is a death to life transformation. That is a significant and powerful, the, I would argue the most powerful stories that we have to tell. And yet when you look at how we behave in media and look at how we behave in digital and look at how we create content for that space, everything that we create in our research, 99% of the content being produced by the global body um, is sermons and podcasts and Bible training and curriculum and felt needs articles, all good things. I would not ever argue against any of those things, but we're trying to reach a audience and a world that is not contextually behaving in digital in those ways. They're not going, we're not going to YouTube and to Instagram and to uh, TikTok to engage with educational literacy-based communication and content. We're going to be entertained and to engage with story and narrative and to check out of our real world, right? And so how do you reach an audience in those places contextually relevant to how they're behaving in those places? It's not, I'm sorry, it's not ever going to be effective with literacy-based communication. The only way I see at being effective in digital is through story and testimony, engaging emotionally through story, contextually relevant to how people behave in those places, and then supporting it and, and, and driving home all of our literacy-based stuff. Engage the limbic brain first, then your neocortex brain is ready to receive all the stuff. You talked about the woman at the well, man possessed by demon legion. Like I point to those two stories as significant testimony moments that prepared people to receive the gospel. So in both situations, Jesus has an interaction, an afternoon interaction with the woman at the well and the man possessed by demon legion. In the case of the man possessed by demon legion, he goes, you are the Messiah. I want to be your disciple. Can I follow you the rest of my life? And Jesus goes, no, I want you to go testify of what you've seen here today. In both cases, the woman at the well and the man possessed by demon legion, they go and testify. They know his name. His name's Jesus. I think he's the Messiah. My life was transformed by him. That's it. I'm not, they're not seminary trained. They're not educated. They just have their story and their testimony. And the next time the disciples and Jesus come through those two regions, in the case of the woman at the well, there's 4,000 people ready to receive the gospel. And in the case of the man possessed by demon legion, it's the feeding of the 4,000. 15,000 people 
are ready to receive potentially, right? Like women and children, they only counted the men. It potentially 15,000 people are ready to receive the gospel because of a single man's testimony about a transformational shift that took place in his life in an afternoon. And so Matthew 13, 13, Jesus talks about, he's talking to his disciples about why he shares stories and uses parables. He's essentially saying, I tell stories to prepare people to receive the gospel, right? Once they've been emotionally engaged through story and testimony and parable, now we're ready to receive all of the things that the church is already doing. And so when I look out into the, the, we talk about experiential truth, right? What's a testimony? You cannot argue with somebody's testimony. Like this is what happened in my life. This Revelation 19.10 says that this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What has happened in your life or what has happened in my life can happen in your life too. Yes. Right. And so this is my experience. This is what Jesus has done in my life. You can't argue with it. There is no apologetic argument for that. Right. Once I've emotionally engaged with that story, now I'm ready to receive your Bible training and your your education content and the sermon that you're inviting me into and the podcast and the, all the things that we're already doing. And so I just see this man chosen. I don't know if you've seen that, but the chosen really opened up this, this world for the first time since maybe the passion of the Christ. Yes. Yes. So, Hey, for our audience, uh, power cut out in the middle of that little rant that I was on. So apologies for that. If our cut together for this is a little bit awkward, that is why, but we were talking about experiential truth. What is we're living in this world where it's not just what were the other forms of truth you were talking about, John? There's, there's absolute uh, truth and 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 uh, relative truth, and now we're I think we're into experiential truth, experiential reality. Right. So reality. if if that is the reality in which we're living, if that's the the audience that we're trying to engage with, like story is the thing that is the only thing that makes sense, right? I can't argue with somebody who doesn't believe in either relative or absolute truth, but. They can't argue with my story and story is what emotionally engages with people at really incredible and deep levels and prepares us to receive that neocortex side of the brain type communication. And in a world where, are you familiar with Rick Sessoms? Have you ever heard of that name? No, I have not. You got to look him up and, and read his book. It's called Leading with Story. His ministry is called Freedom to Lead. We had him on our show a couple of weeks ago. And I, I first learned about Rick through a quote that he made. And he said that 70% of the world is function, functioning in orality or story-centric communication cultures. And yet yes. 90% of the missions world is using literacy-based communication to try to reach an orality world. We are living through this globalization right now mainly because of digital, right? And especially in the West, where we have historically at post-enlightenment ever always been a literacy-based, logic-reason culture, um, we're seeing that shift too, I believe. I think that we're seeing a shift in that. Like our eighth graders by next year, this is a stat, by next year, 64% of eighth graders that come out of public school 
are going to be illiterate in some way, shape or form. 22% of them completely illiterate. Why is that? Well, they're consuming video and photo and iconography all day long. And so you're seeing this shift towards orality story centric communication because in large part because of digital, even in our Western world that has historically been literacy based. How do you reach an orality world with literacy based means? It doesn't work. Well, so right. Let me let me suggest something. First of all, you called it a rant. I don't think it's a rant, but I think it is a teaching. It's a it's a sermon that you need to capture and put in your next blog post. Uh, I think redemptive storytelling uh, is singularly the most powerful reality of the future, and redemptive storytelling is is manifested no more powerfully than the power of a of a testimony of redemption in somebody's life. So the woman at the well, the man with the legion of demons, the two stories you cited are exactly that. They're G. I was I was in this condition. I encountered Jesus. He transformed my life. This is my reality now. And you can't argue with that. You you can argue theoretical things all day long. You can argue philosophical, theological issues. You can't argue a redemptive, transformative story. And I'm going to go one step further just to push you on this blog post that you got to write, uh, and that is. You have linked together brain, you know, neurological reality. You've linked together literacy and literacy based and talked about missiological realities. All that to say, we live in a complex, highly integrated mm-hmm. world. Uh, I look at it, for instance, an iPhone or an Android. And you say, wow, these are amazing. They have the, the, the equivalent of multiple supercomputers for years ago, and they've made it really simple. It would be actually dangerous for you to say that it's simplistic. These are some of the most complex engineered products on the face of the planet. But what they've done with their complexity is they've made it as simple as possible to access. So this is where the chosen, you referenced that briefly. This is where the chosen, I'm a hundred percent fan. They have lifted up the humanity of Jesus without sacrificing Mm -hmm. his deity and the humanity of the disciples and the circumstances and made it so real that it's accessible to people. That's, I think, the challenge for us today, Zach. And so very quickly, I know we only got a few more minutes, but I I wrote this book called Grace Ambassador. Grace Ambassador says this, there is no such thing as a sacred secular divide. All of life is sacred if you're a follower of Jesus. And furthermore, grace is not just received, grace is to be distributed. So how do you distribute grace if you're a follower of Jesus? Here's how you do. You live out your daily redemptive story when your neighbor, when your family member, when the, when the guy or gal in the cube next door or somebody in the warehouse next to you, you are the light of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You represent the life, the love of Jesus in every setting into which you walk. And every setting into which you walk is a sacred space. You are an ambassador of grace. You are literally bringing heaven to earth. And I really think, Zach, that's the missional call for this mm-hmm. generation and the ones to come is experiential reality really means, experiential truth means we must live with the transformative power of the good news of Jesus in the everyday, say no to sacred secular divide and say, I'm on assignment everywhere I go as an ambassador mm-hmm. of heaven. Yeah, that's cool. Well, and, and you see with the chosen, there, have you seen the documentary that they did uh, after season three on Gen Z? Uh, I've devoured it yeah, twice. Yeah, like 
yes. there's something there, right? If we're seeing the shift in that generation, millennial, my generation, and younger yes. in, in this towards an orality communication type model, it makes sense that the chosen is speaking so incredibly effectively to that generation. That's how they're consuming content in every other sphere of life. The only way that makes sense to reach that generation and reach that audience that behaves in that way and, and communicates in that orality type communication structure is through story. And the chosen is a perfect example, right? For the first time, this is where I think we got cut off. This is for the first time since the passion of the Christ, the church has made something of yes. actual high quality media that doesn't just deserve to be thrown in the trash. I'm sorry for all the other Christian creative media that's been produced. It's just not good. And so, man, we finally produce something of quality and it resonates. It resonates with an audience that is behaving in those ways. And, and, and when you look at that documentary, what, what they're compelled by is I've never thought of Jesus. Right. I've never experienced Jesus in this way. And so that's where you just say, oh, my goodness, what's what's happened is that we are seeing now finally a breakthrough moment. Like you said, probably like the passion of Christ uh, at Jessup. We have a digital communication and design uh, major and really storytelling in video and digital form is the heart of that mm. degree. And I think, to be frank, it's it's the future. Uh, missionaries in the future may not put on a different kind of robe. They may produce digital stories that are compelling mm. and redemptive. Yeah, there's a handful of organizations that are doing some of that already. It's really cool to see yeah. what's going on. That's so great. let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned Grace Ambassador. Uh, how can... How can readers apply the principles of, of, of the teachings from your book to improve their relationships with others, overcome personal challenges, um, lead a more fulfilling life? Like you mentioned some of those things. How do, how do we tangibly do that? Yeah. Thank you. Well, if they want more information, just as an aside, then go to graceambassador.com. I know you'll have that in the show notes. But let me just say this. First of all, think of all of life as sacred. So, so you're no longer off duty uh, or on duty only when you're at church or Bible study or a serve day or something like that. You're you're 24 seven a follower of Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, that's your reality is that you always represent mm. Jesus. Number two, recognize this: God made you a certain way. He gave you spiritual gifts. He equipped you with passions and insights. And so, in your everyday walking around world, what does it mean to allow Jesus to shine through you? Romans chapter eight says this, and Zach, I think it's a very challenging passage. It says this, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're mm. a follower of Christ. So if I have God's spirit living in me, yes, I need to read my Bible. Yes, I need to pray. Yes, I need to be in fellowship with other believers. But when I report to work on Monday and I'm driving my delivery truck or I'm going to the gym or I'm in the cube in the office, cubicle in the office, I literally have the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead living in me so that the words that I say, the conversations I have, the actions I take, those are actually divine, sacred mm. spaces. So when you're walking your dog down the neighbor, or you're walking your dog down the neighborhood and a neighbor stops you, that's a sacred moment, which is not to say that you got to quote Bible verses, but it is to say this, you are the presence of Jesus, the way you live, the way you love, 
the way you show kindness and compassion, the way you show tenderness, the way you care for the poor, the way you care for people who are struggling, the way you mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and laugh with those who laugh. Those are all moments where you get to be an everyday ambassador of heaven. And I'll just maybe throw this last thing in, Zach, for, for us to recognize that there is no such thing as the clergy-laity mm. divide. Now, I'm a pastor. I have pieces of paper on the wall. I absolutely honor teachers and preachers and people who serve in various roles in the life of the church. But I want to say this. Uh, if you're in the marketplace, your vocation is not a curse. It's mm. a calling. It's a calling. You are assigned by God in that vocation. And so I want to teach you and equip you to be an ambassador of grace. And that's why I wrote the book. And I want to encourage you to, in your everyday walking around life, manifest the love of God, the life of God in your setting, because <clears throat> that's what he wants you to do. Mm. And uh, it just has to do with our everyday life, how we, how we live out that redemptive testimony and the power of testimony yeah. every day. Priest of all believers, right? Yes, that's like we said we believed in grace received back in the in the Reformation in 1500. We said we believed in priesthood of all believers, but Zach, <laughs> I think we've spent 500 years showing we don't really believe in it. Uh, so now's our time to demonstrate that's that we cool. believe it. Well, Dr. Johnson, this is, or Jackson, sorry, this has been really um, a really fun conversation for me. I appreciate you being on the show. If uh, If people want to learn more about you, or they want to get a hold of you. Obviously, you've referenced the graceambassador.com and where they can find the book, but um, how can they learn more and, and follow along with what you're doing? I think the easy, easiest way, Zach, thank you. It's been a real privilege to be on your on your show. The The easiest way would be to go to drjohnjackson.com. drjohnjackson.com. I've got a link to Jessup and our university I lead, and then to books I've written and to blogs and other things that I think they'll find helpful there. So all, all of those are available at drjohnjackson.com. And I've really enjoyed our yeah, conversation. It's been fun. Can I pray for you as we wrap up? Uh, I'd love to receive awesome. that. Yes. Father, we just thank you so much for this conversation and, and uh, for Dr. Jackson and all that he's doing through Jessup and the content and, and, and books that he's writing. Father, um, I pray that you would continue to speak in and through him and guide and lead him as he um, heads this this university and um, what all comes with that, Lord. Obviously, that there's a lot of um, opportunities for leadership and, and oversight and guidance and innovation into new and fun creative spaces. Uh, I pray that you would just give him clarity and wisdom as he leads this this organization and, and university. Um, I pray for the students at Jessup that they would be um, impacted by the teaching and, and biblical training that's going on and that permeates through everything that Jessup does. Uh, we just thank you so much that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Um, and I pray that you would bless Jessup and um, John and his ministry there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So nice having Amen. you on the Thanks show, so John. Much, Zach. I really, right. I really appreciate the time. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org.
See you next time.